Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. Well, welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. My name is Jonathan Nowlin. I'm your host. Today, we have a special opportunity to talk with Christian psychologist and author, Dr. Timothy Yen. Welcome, Dr. Yen. Thank you so much for having me. So today, we're going to dive into the topic of what I would describe as a key skill set for anyone who wants to manage their Metron well. So the arena of decision making. We're all about this idea of co-laboring with Christ and as such, we make a lot of decisions, hopefully good ones. So at the Metron Manager Project, we're hoping that making disciples who make things right fits right into the topics that you've outlined in your book. Um, I went through it a little bit and read as much as I could. I'm excited for the launch that's coming up. Making right choices would seem to be key to the goal we have here of making disciples who make things right. I would call it a key skill set of making choices. Sounds a little similar to your book topic. So give us the uh, title of your book. So the book is titled Choose Better, the Optimal Decision-Making Framework. That's great. And uh, give us a little idea why, why the title, why the title and the subject matter. Believe it or not, I did not come up with the title myself. I did have a team of people smarter than I am and they felt like it really got kind of cut to the chase. All of us want to choose better. And that captures the idea behind the book. Optimal decision-making framework is exactly how it sounds. Optimal meaning the best possible decision that you can make in this context or this situation. Framework is something I definitely want to highlight, which is it is a systematic way of thinking through your choice process. Interesting. And I love what you said about skills because it is a skill. It's something that can be learned. Everyone can improve in this area. Oh, that's brilliant. So give us a snapshot of your history, you know, why you chose to go into psychology, you know, that'll help our, our listeners understand why this book came about, why this project happened. So I won't bore you with my whole life story, But in short, I didn't choose psychology. I think psychology chose me. Interesting. I started off wanting to be a journalist and I found out that I was severely colorblind. So apparently in the army, you can't be colorblind and be a journalist. Wow. So it kind of dwindled (laughs) down my options and mental health was one of the six occupations that were offered to me that didn't require color. So in a weird way, it chose me because uh, it was something that I can do with my colorblindness. But also, believe it or not, I totally thought it was a sham job. I, I didn't even think it was a real, I was like, what? They're going to pay me to just like chit chat with people and listen to their stories? I was like, done. Let's do wow. this. And then when I enlisted in the army, uh, well, I was in for a pleasant surprise that it was much more challenging than that. And, and it really is transformative work as a, as a, as a psych- psychologist. So when I got into it, worked with soldiers, realized 
yeah, I should probably go back to school and sharpen my skill in this area to help the most people that I possibly can. Oh, that's great. It almost touches on like a, uh, almost like a vision and mission concept you would have in your life. So is that really kind of what drove your, the work you're doing now, your mission is that vision to help these folks initially? Well, I can definitely give you a more selfish answer, which is <laughs> I wanted to find a career that was interesting and, you know, something that wasn't repetitive. And what I found was people's lives are just as unique as there are shapes of snowflakes. I don't know. There's just so right. many variants of people's life experiences. And as a, a lover of movies, books, stories, it was just something that just kept me engaged day in and day out. But of course I wanted to do something that was meaningful, something that uh, had the potential of changing the trajectory of someone's future. Yeah. And to me, that was meaningful work. So those are probably the two things that really uh, grabbed me toward the field of psychology. Well, that's fantastic. Um, you know, this book you, you just uh, wrote and that's coming out soon it is uh, obviously a lot of work. It's a well-done book. It's well-constructed. It's lengthy, but not, I would say, not overly lengthy from my assessment. It's very That's readable. Um, and I, I don't think it's written to the the uh, psychologist crowd, so to speak. I think it's more uh, mainstream, if I, yeah, if I would understand that correctly. But obviously, it's still yes. a huge amount of work. So why the book? Why did you put it, this, this construct into the book, this thought? Like, where did, where did you see the need for this? What drove that? So I had a conversation with a, a friend and an executive in a tech company. And at the time, I was just having dinner with her and asking her a really simple question, which was, uh, if I was able to come in and bring value to your company, what is it that what kind of topic would you be interested in having covered? And she was the one that told me critical thinking. Interesting. How can I help my supervisors, uh, employees, executive managers make better choices, giving the landscape of deadlines, pressures, multiple expertise with different viewpoints. How do we go about making the best decisions possible? And time efficiently as well. So that kind of got me thinking and being a psychologist and working with uh, hundreds of people at this point, I realized that there was a pattern in the work that I did with people, which is outlined in this framework. Time and time again, if I really were to distill what helps people make better decisions, it was this way of critically thinking. And I know that in my lifetime, I can only touch X amount of people one-on-one, -on -one. right? but with a book, it was just a much wider net. I think a lot of people can benefit from being able to choose better. And that motivated me to write this book. That's, that's great. And so you feel that if someone picks up this book and they go through it and they don't even, they're not familiar say with these concepts, and maybe they're even going through a lot of life struggles as it is. Um, and they're not obviously an expert in their own, uh, situation, um, Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be visiting a psychologist. But, uh, you know, what would they be able to track with this and actually implement something from this book? Is it, is it implementable on a life like a ground level for a reader? I think you can implement it in every level. Okay. Professionally, personally, it is something that uh, the way that I've outlined these concepts and, and questions, very common day questions 
it, it applies on a human level. So if you're having a human experience, it's going to be applicable to you. That's great. And I've got a couple of topics that I that I keyed in in on from the book that I want to ask you about. But you know, what are what are a couple of your favorites? Obviously, there's a ton in there. It's great stuff. But you probably have a couple of highlight ones, uh, big ideas or concepts that you're really passionate about that are in the book. What would you want to emphasize if somebody just heard a couple of them? I'm guessing most people will want to know what is this framework that we keep talking about. So I can give a really quick overview of what the framework is in, in a nutshell. Sure. And of course, there's many levels within each pillar. But for our listeners, at least they know every time we say framework, this is what we're referring to. Right. So the framework really has four pillars. There's, there's four questions that I'm hoping people will pause and ask themselves before they make any sort of call, any sort of decision. Pillar number one is the emotions, which is what is my feelings trying to tell me? And the reason why I start with that pillar is because our emotions hit us one tenth of a second. It, it hits our brain so quickly that our logic part of our brain is just catching up to right. understanding what these emotions are. It, it comes from a fight or flight primal part of our brain. So this pillar number one, because your feelings are trying to tell you something and most likely it's something very important. If you didn't feel intensely about this thing, chances are it's not all that important. We only feel strongly about things that are, that, that are important to us. Okay. That'd be anger, frustration, sadness, whatever the case may be. So pillar number one is asking that question. I feel something towards someone or something. What is it really trying to tell me? So that's pillar number one. Pillar number two is the values of self, which is what is most meaningful and important to me. And, and values is a very abstract concept. We can be talking about attributes such as loyalty, integrity, honesty, respect. Those are all types of values, uh, but it could be something as simple as I like strawberry ice cream over chocolate ice cream. So preferences also uh, go into this concept called values. So in every situation, your values are going to be challenged one way or another. And having that question come up, which is what's most important to me in this situation would be pillar number two. Okay. Pillar number three, because we don't live in a vacuum, we do interact with people in a lot of our uh, challenges. So it's important to ask, what are the values of others? Just because I care about something doesn't mean the other party cares about the same things. So that's the question of what do they care about? So I can factor that in. Pillar number four is a reality factor, as I call it, which is uh, what is, what is in my environment? What's in society that I may want to consider when I make this decision? I, I kind of call it the, the gravity factor. You don't have to believe in gravity. You may not understand gravity, but if you walk off a cliff, you will know gravity by experience. <laughs> so there's certain things in our lives that it's not really up for your, it's not up for debate or opinion. Like it's just something that's going to be part of this equation. What are some of those factors? And the yeah. idea of the framework is asking questions with each pillar. You will come up with a few options, options, choices that you can choose from. And my hope is that using those four pillars as a way to gather data points, you will arrive at 
the optimal decision, the best decision for the situation that reflects your values and allows you to live authentically. Wow, that's fascinating. And, uh, and not that complex, but also co- complex enough to make it matter, <laughs> to make it work. That's really cool. <laughs> sure. You know, as I uh, went through uh, the book, I, I, I ran into the chapter later on in the book called Rebound, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I really yeah. like this topic. I think it's vital, especially in the times we're living in. So it really resonated because many people, they're in need of hope and strength. They need to rebound from a year of disaster and brokenness. Some of sure. it is self-inflicted, but a lot of it came upon them through no fault of their own. Can you share on this right. concept of rebound? Like, what would you, how would you apply that to the moment even that a lot of people are living in right now, the world we're in right now? I want everyone to know that it's never too late to make a better choice. Sometimes we get it in our heads that because I have a history of making bad choices, uh, bad things happen to me and I just can't escape it. Those are the lies that get lodged in people's head that prevents them from choosing better from trying again and rebound is, is that very concept. It's a concept of resilience that you're only one choice away from making a better decision. And that chapter really talks about some of those barriers that people experience and have that prevent them from even testing out the framework. They may read the book, it makes sense, but then they start having that internal dialogue of, is this even going to matter? Is it too late for me? Right. And that's really the heartbeat behind that chapter, which is it's never too late until you die. I suppose (laughs) then it may be too late, but if you're still able to listen to the sound of our voices, it's never too late. And, and it's a skill. It's something that can be honed in and, and developed and improved on. That's great. And how would you advise people when they're dealing with, say, adversity and needing to be resilient in this kind of world we're living in these these days? Like when things come at them externally, that isn't necessarily something they can even fix themselves or that is um, just environmental even. Is Is there a key point you want you could highlight on rebounding from those kind of circumstances or situations? The assumption is that because someone has experienced hardship, there's probably a lot of pain and disappointment and uh, just hurt around what happened, what transpired. And of course, our brain, uh, my my professor used to call it our meaning-making machines. Our brain is always trying to explain for like what happened, like what what's our understanding of it. And, and sometimes we come up with some conclusions that are not very empowering. They, they don't make us want to try again. And I would probably start there. Even the framework will apply to disappointments and pain because pain is pillar number one, yeah. which is what are our emotions trying to tell me? And you can probably walk through that process of, well, I'm disappointed because I had this kind of expectation. I put in this kind of work and I didn't get this kind of outcome. And I think it's so important for people to feel the feelings. Mm. We live in a society where people are so scared 
to feel negative feelings or distressing feelings. They want to run from it. They want to suppress it. It makes them feel weak. Whatever the story is, we will not heal unless we give space and permission to feel whatever we need to feel. That is a huge part of the rebound because unless you heal, it's going to just trigger and, and pull up past stuff all over again. And it doesn't position us in a, in a posture of strength. So listen to your feelings and then going back to the values. Okay. So I made a mistake. What went wrong? What, what are some data points that I did not consider? And, and what is truly important to me if I were to do it over again, or if the situation were to arise in the future, what do I want to make sure I do address? How would I want to do it better the next time? Was I dishonest before? Because I was afraid that if I told the truth, then people would judge me poorly. And then it didn't work out anyways. So right. maybe the conclusion is, okay, dishonesty not only made me feel terrible on the inside, I still didn't get the outcome that I wanted. Maybe I need the courage to be honest and, and, and tactful in the way that I present my thoughts or feelings. So, so whatever the case may be, again, back to the basics, it, it's, it's back to those two things. Uh, of, of course, the other two parts of the framework are important as well. But I think the first two, it is a great place to start for people uh, that are struggling with uh, what's next. How do I work from here? That's really good. And, you know, our audience, is, you know, that I'm working with to develop successful Metron managers, a lot of a lot of them are readers of my book, uh, Managing Your Metron, and they've gone through my curriculum on vocation. And they've probably listened to the podcast series, they've done some of the video series, and they're coming from a faith community, a Christian faith community, and a lot of their context for values and for these kind of processes are going to be in Christian community. And do you, you know, do you have any pointers or recommendations for how does one work this out within the context of say a, a Christian community or a small group or a safe group of people that you relate to well at your church or even in uh, the marketplace? Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say to that audience? So the framework is applicable to anyone in any background, any faith tradition, uh, non-faith tradition even. For the Christian community, the values in a way has been preset. So it's easier for the Christian community because those values point back to Jesus. Interesting, <laughs> so yeah, it's, you're it's right. Not, it's not values that we even need to come up with because if we believe that uh, our heavenly father uh, created us and we are made in his image, then the things that God cares about, the things that beat after his own heart are going to resonate with us as well. And it's important to go back to scripture and, and know and learn what does God value? What does God care about for his people? Uh, and, and I think those types of values become central to the dialogue of making better decisions for, for the believer. Well, that's excellent stuff. Um, another question I had along those lines, you know, dealing in the uh, faith-based Christian community, uh, what are reoccurring, what would you identify some reoccurring failure points? Obviously, you as a counselor and a psychologist, you probably see trends in your vocation and your work with people. Mm -hmm. But speaking to this Christian faith-based audience that really are serious about 
becoming disciples who make things right. They're really going after making good decisions, co-laboring with God. They want to manage their Metron well, but they probably also stumble over certain choices or methods of operating in their in their metron um but i would probably think those are common i bet there's probably trends out there so what would you identify some failure points that are common that people can watch out for and maybe how to identify them or correct them in the christian community one of the patterns that inadvertently comes up is what i call Christian culture or, or church culture, which may not necessarily be kingdom culture. Right. <laughs> so it may not be of God, but because we are people, sometimes these uh, expectations of what does it mean to be a Christian gets created. And there's these norms, which is in a weird way, pillar number four about the reality factors. There are certain expectations that are placed upon oneself or the Christian community that may not be kingdom, as I said. And I think that can get a lot of people in trouble, especially when it comes to living authentically, honestly, vulnerably. That is a, a common trend for believers because to admit that there is fault or having certain kind of thoughts that may produce guilt or shame, it's almost better to not acknowledge them because, hmm. well, if I'm a believer, I shouldn't even have these thoughts or feelings to begin with, as opposed right. to saying, hey, they're here. And these feelings, these thoughts are, are trying to tell me something. Who are my trusted allies? Who, who, who in the body of Christ can I actually speak honestly with and, and work through the framework together to, to decide, hey, um, what is it that I need to surrender to God? What are things that uh, maybe my family background or, or society may say, oh, that's, you shouldn't want that or that that's no good, but it may actually be coming from like who God created you to be and, and not being ashamed of certain kind of desires or um, passions even. So, so this facade image thing prevents people from uh, getting to the heart of who they are even. And I think that comes up in the church community uh, more than I would like to see. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I've observed that as well. You know, early on in your book, you mentioned another trend or item that I thought was applicable here as well, avoiding conflict at all costs. Could you speak to that one at all? Because that's one I've seen quite a bit. Yes. So that is part of the church culture, yeah. this idea that all conflict is bad. And that's a lie. Right. <laughs> Not all. In fact, in love, there is healthy conflict. For some people, perhaps conflict has not been modeled as anything but bad. So it, it doesn't surprise me that some people will uh, lie, suppress their feelings, do all sorts of interesting things to avoid this thing called conflict. The reality is conflict is birthed out of differences. Differences in opinion, differences in perspective. And if we want people to be authentic and honest, then we need to make room for conflict. Now, I'm not saying conflict meaning violence or disrespect, right, not, not, nothing of that <laughs> sort. I, I think, like I said, there's healthy conflict, but to not be afraid of conflict. 
unhealthy conflict, we should do our best to avoid like the plague, but conflict in and of themselves, it's a beautiful thing. If you want to live in a world of diversity and differences, conflict is unavoidable. Right. It's unavoidable. And I think that's a tapestry of God's beauty is diversity. I mean, look at the animals. Right. There's so many weird ones out there. If God was like, <laughs> yeah, I just wish everything was the same and everyone had the exact same opinion about everything, maybe everyone would be a dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and only one kind of dog, perhaps. Right. But if you look at just animals, we haven't gotten to plants and all sorts of other creations. So conflict is one of those things that I'm hoping through the framework, people will at least start being honest with themselves. And there's a whole chapter on courage. Yeah, I love that. How do I move forward in following through on this decision after I've identified it? And, but yes, I'm glad you brought up the conflict thing. That, that is one of the taboos of our Christian community. That's great. That's a great point. That is really true. And that, you know, as we're trying to develop what I call successful Metron managers, we're trying to identify and speak to some of these reoccurring failure points or areas of foundation that need to be reestablished in the discipleship process to really help people succeed uh, and lead in managing their Metrons. So this is really helpful. You know, in uh, my experience, many people really want to make good and godly decisions, and they really care about the influence they have on their Metron. But often they make a mistake or a couple of mistakes and they lose their self-confidence. You seem to indicate that terrible outcomes usually are born out of a series or a pattern of poor decisions, not just one or two. So more so uh, than a few bad choices, you start to see bad outcomes from patterns. So what are some thoughts on that that would help people even see that in their own life? A common example would be lies to cover more lies. Okay. That's probably a great example because once you lie once and someone puts you in check to follow up, you're going to have to keep lying in order to keep this fabricated story alive. And that concept of we don't just arrive here because of one decision, uh, that's absolutely true. There are many points in the journey that have led us to whatever decision we end up making, not all decisions are weighted equally in in terms of outcomes. Certain decisions have much weightier outcomes and other ones not so much. In most cases, the, the decisions that we make that have much more dire consequences, there were many decision points prior to that choice that you, that one could have made right and turn things around something as simple well i take that back it may not be simple but the concept is simple which is admitting fault apologizing uh, seeking uh, reconciliation for a lot of these challenges that we face especially relationally that could happen on choice two choice four choice ten even but it's because choices one through 20, there is no recourse. It's just, yeah. you know, lie after lie or, you know, getting their version of justice, aka right. revenge. It just turns into something that was never intended. And now that person has to deal with the consequences. So, so yes, that, that's definitely a pattern. And, and, and the courage piece of it is 
you can make a better decision and break the cycle. It doesn't have to continue that way. Do you find that to make those kind of decisions or break those patterns or even possibly identify those patterns, you really do need people around you, your Christian community, your small group, other other people's perspectives and observations, like be humble enough to hear from people. Is that what something you would also advocate, like getting people to be humble enough to hear from others? That I guess it goes back to that vulnerability point you pointed out earlier. Sure. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say everyone in your life should have an equal seat at the table. Yeah, in terms absolutely of not. <laughs> speaking into your life. Yes. So I would probably add the modifier trusted people. Right. People that have your best interests in mind. Yes, that, that is a huge piece of being able to manage one's Metron better. It's, yeah. it's to be able to know, hey, maybe I'm clouded by my feelings even. I'm right. just so upset I, I just can't see beyond my need for justice for this thing maybe i need to take a step back and hear it from someone that's not caught up not not so close to the situation and have them speak life into me that is probably one of the wisest things people can do and, and, I, and i hope that everyone has at least one person in their life that can speak into their life well one of the things i emphasize in my curriculum on uh, managing your metron is the need for gathering a group of people around you. I call it a Metron council, but it's really like a Metron mm-hmm. uh, and a group of advisors, just like you're saying, trusted individuals that have your best interest in mind. They have some history with you, some long-term knowledge, sure. and you're, you're on, you have good relationship with them that you really trust their input. They are willing to trust yours and you're all hearing from God together. And so I really advocate for people to gather the kind of a group of people around themselves intentionally and be that for other people as well to be able to function as the body of Christ and really uh, weigh in together on things. Something similar to, I think, what you're emphasizing there. So another statement uh, you make in your book that I think is really helpful for our audience is decision-making is your responsibility, not anyone else's. And we must give up our position as victims of our circumstances. I like those two concepts. Could you uh, touch on that a little bit uh, as a, as a, expert in this area and give a little wisdom on this. Cause I think that this is one of the, one of those systemic failure points that we see in most uh, of our lives is we don't want to take responsibility. We think it's someone else's uh, fault. And uh, we put ourselves in this position of victims of other people or of circumstances, but that's not really a helpful way to live. Is it? Not at all. And I, I want to share a story in my book, personal story that, illustrates this point about uh, victor versus victim. And back in the day when I was younger, I, I did enlist in the U.S. Army. So I have a about an eight-year stint when I was serving uh, at that time. And one of the most challenging moments of my life was during boot camp, they call it. Or it's like hell camp, really. Uh, just a lot of psychological, physical, emotional torture. <laughs> To, to train you, to make you stronger, but they have to break you down to nothing before they rebuild you up into model soldiers. And there was a situation, I'll, I'll give you a little context, which is uh, I was the only Asian American in a camp of 120 some people. And so I was already kind of the odd man out. And it was a boot camp made of only men. 
So I don't know okay. what, what that means exactly. Perhaps there's even less humanity in that kind of setup, but there's a lot of hormones and anger in this camp. It's like Lord of the Flies kind of, kind of <laughs> setup. And there was, a, there was a time when we were learning how to shoot our rifles. And I was in uh, Georgia in the summer. So if you know anything about Georgia, it is very, very humid. You're pretty much swimming in the air. That, that, that's kind of how it felt. And I had to wear these really ugly glasses because you couldn't wear contacts in the field. It would possibly get infected. So everyone had to wear these really ugly, huge frame plastic glasses. And as you can imagine, glasses with humidity means fogginess. So, so I couldn't see through my eyes and I was supposed to hit these tiny little targets from like 300 meters <laughs> away. It just wasn't happening. And I remember going up to the drill sergeant at the time and explaining my plight. How am I supposed to hit these things if I can't see? And instead of getting the support that I thought I was going to get, I got punched for whining, which <laughs> I don't think is part of the training. I don't know. I, I really don't know what was going across his mind, uh, but I got punched uh, in the stomach. I was doubled over. They were kind of <laughs> laughing at me with no solution in sight. I just had a whimper and walk away after that encounter. And you could probably guess how strong that victim mindset set in at that point. Right. I was at their mercy. I, I didn't know why God would put me in this kind of place. Uh, I swore they were probably racist. I don't know. I had all sorts of <laughs> ideas swimming in my head. And I was like, oh, dude, it's just so unfair, so unfair. I was so upset. And then... I don't know if it was a God moment because a voice of reason kind of came into my mind at that moment. And the, and the question came up, did anyone make you enlist? And I had to think for a second, I guess not. I volunteered, didn't I? And, and it, it just changed the whole narrative, which was I didn't, I, things weren't happening to me. I voluntarily chose to put myself in this position to be trained, to be a soldier, to, to get uh, college money benefits, whatever it was that I was signing right. up <laughs> at the time for. And, and that shift changed everything because I chose to take power back, which was what am I choosing rather than woe is me, why are bad things happening to me? If you want to get really existential, why not? What makes me so special that bad things shouldn't <laughs> happen to me? I'm not. I'm really not exempt. And, and, and I think when I'm able to break through that thought process, I realize I am a culmination of my life choices. And therefore, I'm not going to give my power of choice away. Right. especially to this drill sergeant. I, I was not going to give this power away. I, I grabbed it back and I, I put it right back to, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for my life because that's the only way that I can move forward. If I give that power away and play victim, sure, it kind of feels good for a second because pity me, feel bad for me, but you end up giving away the only thing you have, which is the power of choice. So you're absolutely right. Victim mentality, uh, it, it may feel good for a moment, but you really disempower yourself. And I would hate that for anyone. Yeah, I agree. That's that's an incredible story. And I would say that 
it's also key to becoming a successful Metron manager, this concept, because if you give away your authority, so to speak, over your own life and your own choices, then you really don't have the authority to lead or influence or take responsibility for the other things that God's given you. Uh, it's a serious deal. You know, I was as you were sharing that, I was, I was thinking about this concept of uh, you mentioned it in your book too, but bouncing back from negative outcomes and you have a statement in there, a uh, bad decision is not the end of the, of the line. And I think a lot of believers have made bad decisions or they feel like they've really failed in those times of trial and tribulation, like you're describing, you went through, they didn't, they didn't seize the moment and step up. They really folded. And now they've really taken that on as a, as an identity, that failure or those couple of failures or whatever they were, even a pattern of failure in these things, they've taken it on an identity of shame and failure rather than saying, you know, I made a mistake. They, they get this idea of, they would say, I am a mistake or I am, you know, a mistake making machine, you know, they take it as an identity. And so how do you help people break free from this false narrative? Cause I think a lot of people are stuck on this. They just don't even trust themselves. Mm. And, and trusting yourself is a process. It, it, it makes sense to me that someone would stop trusting themselves and, and have a lot of doubt if their track record is pretty shoddy, not, not yeah. particularly a, a great track record, but something that really surfaced for me as, as you were asking that question is where do we find our identity in the first place? Correct. Yeah. And if your identity is centered on your performance, what you do, how you do things, then you are always on the hook to be perfect or else you lose value as an individual as a believer, that is one of the greatest gifts that we have, which is our identity isn't in our performance. Our identity is found in the one who gives us value, which is our heavenly father. And it's really about going back to the basic fundamental right. things, which is our identity is found in him. The only reason why I'm worthy and valuable is because he says so period. Like there, there's nothing to debate. There's nothing to prove. I'm already valuable because I'm loved by God who gives value to everything. Uh, and, and therefore, because of my identity in the one who gives me value, uh, being able to make better choices comes from that place and not the other way around where we're trying to prove something to ourselves and other people because of what we do. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, getting uh, free of that identity as being a failure and dealing with failure as a, a learning point and a, what some people would describe as failing forward, those concepts are really crucial. Yeah. And I guess it kind of speaks to one of my last points I wanted to bring up, but I, I think that would be part of becoming confident in making decisions uh, as in life in general or in community or in what I would call your Metron. And you have a summary statement in your book, it's time to shift to a framework mindset. And uh, as we wrap up here, give us an idea of what it means. How would you make that shift to a framework mindset? The framework mindset is taking out all of the extra noise that maybe we're accompanied to, which contributes to distraction, confusion, and boiling it back to the framework mindset. Ask yourself those four questions. Before you do anything, just ask yourself those four questions. And 
in, in some cases, you may not even need all four questions and you'll know what the best answer was. I'll give you an example. This just happened two weeks ago. My wife and I were having this conversation and uh, she was torn between, you know, because of COVID and we're not, especially in California, we're not supposed to really go anywhere, Yeah, but we're just itching. It's the weekend. We finally had some free time. We wanted to go check out a, a new city. And so, and, and she wanted to go to a farmer's market more specifically. Yes. <laughs> and, and she was going back and forth, back and forth. She was just like, I don't know. I, I, I want to go, but then I feel like a bad person if I do go, especially since she is a, a public health nurse. She feels that she needs to really you know, walk what she preaches. So she's kind of going back and forth. And I was like, hey, honey, would you like, try, would you like to try out this framework thing? Something that I wrote about. And she goes, yeah, sure. Shoot, <laughs> like, what? Well, let's try the framework. And, and I said, okay, well, what feelings are you having right now? And she goes, well, I'm feeling, you know, frustration. I'm feeling some sadness about, you know, less options of my time. And, and she literally just went through these two or three feelings that she was able to identify and ask her the question, why? Like, why do you feel the frustration? Why do you feel uh, the sadness? And she's like, oh, I feel the frustration because this is what I want to do. And I feel like I should have the right to do it. But then it's not, quote unquote, the right choice. And after she kind of explained to herself, articulated why she felt this way, she goes, oh, yeah, I don't really want it that bad, actually. Now, now that I sorted it out, this is I can only get maybe 10% benefit, but there's 90% cost because of the, you know, it was bad weather that day. There's like other factors that was right. playing into effect. So she didn't even need the other three pillars. She did pillar one, sorted out how she felt. And she goes, yeah, this framework stuff really works. I am, I have a hundred percent certainty. I do not want to go to the farmer's market today. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And how long did that take us? Two minutes. She's like, yeah, maybe like two, three minutes. And I'm, I was going back and forth for an hour and, I just needed a couple of minutes. So that's the framework mindset is work smarter, not harder. Just pause, especially when you're feeling whatever feelings are coming up for you. That's a great time to not act, but to think, to shift into the framework mindset, ask yourself the questions and more times than not, you're going to feel more confident with the decision that you come up with. Wow. That is excellent. These are excellent concepts uh, for helping our Metron managers make confident and effective decisions. Uh, thank you, Dr. Yen, for your being on the Metron Manager podcast and investing in our goal of helping believers become successful Metron managers in the kingdom of God. Okay, everyone, check out Dr. Timothy Yen's new book, Choose Better, the Optimal Decision-Making Framework, available on Amazon.com and other retailers on January 26th, coming right up. Great. So we also have a special offer for those of you that are following the Metron Manager podcast. Dr. Timothy Yen wants to share an opportunity to get a hold of his new book for a very affordable price right as it comes out on January 26th. Yes, I would love to get a copy of my book into your hands uh, as, as easy as possible. So January 26th, will be my book launch week. That's when my book will be available for sale. And uh, for all you listeners, 
out there, the e version or the Kindle version will be made available for 99 cents that entire week. And that would be great, a great resource to get into your hands just for that week only. You can visit my website at www.timyen.com or you can choose a find Choose Better, the optimal decision-making framework on amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.